We, um, we kind of were joking, <coughs> excuse me, here this morning and throughout the worship services, and, and John talked about it uh, in the, the contemporary service, in the middle service, that um, we, some of us, um, fight a, what, what feels like a little bit of a, a losing battle, which is we do our best to, to push off the beginning of, of Advent or the Christmas season, as it's more commonly referred to, though there's a little theological pushback. I have Christmas is the day, Advent is the season. But, but this, this time of year, some of us push back on getting into that until we've had Thanksgiving. We do our best. I do. It's, it's my losing fight to, to say we don't start Advent until Thanksgiving has come and gone. And that is especially challenging uh, a time like this year where, I mean, the, the leftovers are, are still in the fridge from Thanksgiving and we start Advent where we have uh, very little time in between. But we are uh, begin today with this um, this holy season and this season of, of a lot of um, emotions and experiences and, and energy and joy and, and even recognizing um, some, some difficulty and some challenges and some, some hurts that we sometimes bring into this time of the year as well. And so with all of that, we, uh, we're going to begin a, a series today that will carry us through this season that I've, I've simply called A Recipe for Christmas. And what we're going to look at is each week of, of Advent, what are some of the key ingredients to, to the Christ-centered celebration of this season? What are some of the things that God's words, Word tells us that, that we experience through the, the coming of Jesus? And, and today we start with this um, look at excitement, a pinch of excitement, our first ingredient. And, and we see that, and we see certainly that with, you know, the kids that, that lead us in worship and especially start to get excited at this time of year, um, as, as kids should, you know, as, as the season begins. How many of you remember uh, the, the Advent calendars that you do, and you'd have a piece of candy, and you'd count down, and, and it seems so far away. And it seems like you're waiting for something that's never going to get here. Uh, now, for most of us, it'll be here faster than we want. We want to figure out how to slow it down is what we want to do. But, but we sense um, their excitement, and, and that's one of the things and one of the joys that kids bring to us. And not just kids. As adults, we have it too. Uh, and, and in our household, we get through Thanksgiving, but, but beyond that, I've lost all control. And on Friday after Thanksgiving, the Christmas decorations go up. And the Christmas tree goes up and the lights go up and it all gets done the very next day because I have kids that are still excited. And I'm glad they are because I get excited because they get excited. And excitement is a part of the celebration of Advent, the looking forward to Christmas that we should all bring into it. But we maybe bring into it in a little different way once we understand the promise of God and what God is inviting us to. But the truth remains, it's about looking forward to something that's going to be here. Now, for kids, it's December 25th when they're going to tear into the presents. But for us, it's looking forward to a promise that God gives. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to look at it first from the perspective of those who lived before the birth of Christ. And we're going to look at it specifically through a few verses spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. 
in the 33rd chapter of, of Jeremiah, we read these words, and, and it's part of a much larger whole, but I just want you to hear these three verses, verses 14, verses 15, and verses 16. This is what we read. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I have made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, your word, speak to us through it. Speak into our lives, into our hearts. Speak and birth in us the excitement of Advent and the anticipation of not only what you have done, but what you will do through Christ Jesus our Lord. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. So these words in Jeremiah... These, these few verses, which are part of a much larger <coughs> um, series of, of positive, hopeful, encouraging words that Jeremiah speaks. Prophecies that, that Jeremiah share about what is going to happen and a promise that God makes to his people. And they are words that are incredibly um, hopeful. They're incredibly uplifting. And that is remarkable if you understand the ministry of Jeremiah. If you've had some experience in reading um, the book of Jeremiah, you may know that what makes these words so remarkable is they're kind of out of character for the larger picture of what Jeremiah did and, and who the message that Jeremiah had called or that God had called Jeremiah to speak to his people. Because Jeremiah, as, as we have talked about before, is known as uh, the weeping prophet. And his message to the people is often um, filled with words of, of judgment, of words of, of impending doom, if you will, of of accountability for their unfaithfulness. Jeremiah lived at a time when the unfaithfulness of the people um, was at a, I think it's fair to say, almost an all-time high. You know, their ancestors had, had, had entered this covenant with God, contingent um, or, or at least promising their faithfulness and their obedience, and over and over again they failed to live up to that. And in the time of Jeremiah, the people had wandered so far from God's desire for them. They had wandered so far from the ways of God and the faithful worship of God, and they'd begun to worship or continued to worship um, false gods and the prophet of Baal, and they had even begun to take on some of the uh, rituals such as child sacrifice of these false gods. And Jeremiah steps into the scene, and his message over and over again is that judgment is coming, that God will use a, a foreign power as an instrument of accountability for your unfaithfulness. And that the streets of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel is going to be laid to waste. And that's over and over what he tells the people. Desperate for them to return to the ways of the Lord. And his message 
uh, is not met with faithfulness. It's not met, you know, uh, uh, remember, uh, I just blanked, um, uh, Nineveh, somebody who went to Nineveh, Jonah, thank you. Ah, boy, there goes my seminary education right out the window. I'm like, where do you go? See, it happens. You think I know this stuff. I make it up as I go. Um, but remember when Jonah went to Nineveh and, and he preached this same kind of message of accountability? And the scriptures say that the Ninevites repented. Well, Jeremiah is not met with that kind of a reception. And in fact, his life is very hard because the people do not welcome his words of of accountability and judgment, and he suffers greatly for it. And so that's the big picture of what Jeremiah speaks. And, and the, the tragedy of it is exactly what he prophesied what would happen. Babylon would come down from the north, and it would lay wa- they would lay waste to the people of Israel, and they would carry off the people of Israel into to bondage. Remember uh, Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they're part of that as they're carried into captivity. And Jerusalem is in desolation. And all that Jeremiah had spoken comes to pass. And in the aftermath of all of that, and that judgment, and that destruction, and that suffering, and that hardship that the people brought on themselves for their unfaithfulness, God gives Jeremiah a new word. And part of that new word is what we read in Jeremiah 33. And as opposed to what had previously been his message of accountability and judgment, God gives Jeremiah now a word of hope and a word of promise. I want you to hear again. I want to back up. I didn't read this part a few moments ago. But I want you to hear verse 10. And then I'm going to reread some of what we, we read from this morning. Verse 10 says, This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it is a desolate waste, without people or animals. Hear that? This is this nation, this, this city, this one great, once great people are now in waste without people or animals. Yet the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither people nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness. Moving on back to verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I have made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. That's verse 16. What God says to the people through Jeremiah is, yes, you have reaped what you've sown. You have been disobedient to my covenant. You have forgotten the promises you have made. But God reminds the people, I have not forgotten the promises I have made. And even in the midst of the rubble that has become your existence, you will experience restoration. You will be restored. God makes a promise to the people. And the first truth we hold fast to in Advent is that God honors His promises. God honors His promises. And the people hold fast the word they begin to hear from the prophet. The word that would birth, I believe, some some seeds of excitement and joy and hope in their lives is words of restoration. I will make things right again. And that begins begins for us the first promise that we hold fast to at Advent. That God, even in the midst of sometimes the chaos and, and 
rubbles of our lives is a God who honors his promise. I was reading an excerpt, as I often do, um, of the life of a biography, really, on um, Viktor Frankl, who you may know, uh, the Jewish uh, psychologist uh, who was imprisoned during World War II in a number of concentration camps. And uh, Viktor Frankl talked after his liberation uh, about the experiences of his uh, initial arrest by the Nazis. And he had been working on a manuscript and working on a book. He would describe this book as his spiritual baby. And when he was arrested, he hid the, the manuscripts in the lining of his coat so that it wouldn't be destroyed. Eventually, when he was shipped to or sent to Auschwitz, uh, the, the manuscript was disco- discovered and it was destroyed. And, and he said it was devastating to him. And not only that, but then he was stripped of the clothes that he had. They took his clothes from him. And in turn, they gave him really what amounted to the rags of a, of a prisoner who had been sent to the gas chamber. And so they went and the, this prisoner was killed and they gave Viktor Frankl the the remainder of his clothes. And he said in the midst of this um, grief over his experiences, in the midst of this loss of hope, uh, he reached into some sort of a pocket or lining of, of these, I don't even know if clothes are the, the fair way to describe them, but he, but he found in the, this remnant of these rags, he found a, a page of the, the Jewish from the Jewish prayer book. It was part of the the Shema. And the prayer basically went, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then it went on with what Jesus would refer to as the great commandment. You're to love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Viktor Frankl said he just could not believe it was a coincidence that this one page, this remnant, this small portion of the prayer had found its way into his hand when it once held his own manuscript. And he believed it was God reminding him, telling him, convicting him, challenging him that it was not important, as important that his thoughts were laid out on paper as it was that his thoughts were lived out in his life. That he held on to his hope. That he held on to his faith even in the midst of what was a seemingly hopeless situation. And it renewed faith in him. And it was a faith that would sustain him in what would be months and months and months of, of imprisonment and, and bouncing around in, from, from some other um, in captivity and, and concentration camps. But he held on to that promise that God would make things new again. That restoration would come, not guaranteed in his life, but he had a hope and a promise that God hadn't abandoned him there. And that's the promise that we hold to. That's the promise Jeremiah speaks to his people. That's the promise that God speaks to us, that I have made a promise to be with you, that I am present in your lives. And that's part of the recognition and the celebration of Advent. But it's not just an ambiguous promise. It's not just a, a big umbrella, kind of apply it as you will promise. It's a promise that is given flesh and blood in a person. It's a promise that is experienced in a person, and that person is the person of Jesus. In fact, I I read verse 10, I read from verse 15, or 14 and 16 again, but I intentionally skipped over verse 15 because Jeremiah gives some some shape 
to the way that this deliverance, this restoration is going to happen when he says, in those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line, and he will do what is just and right in the land. Jeremiah says that this promise of God is coming in the shape of a person of God, in which the restoration will begin. And the broken places will be made whole. That's the person of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we live in a time when we continue to be desperate for the brokenness to be made whole. I, I have wrestled this week and had conversations this week, as many of you have, as we have watched the, the aftermath of the acquittal of Darren Wilson, Officer Wilson, in Ferguson, Missouri. And we've seen the violence. And we've seen the protests. And we've seen the unrest. Uh, and we've seen the anger and the hurt. And, and I don't have a simple solution to that. I'm not going to sit here in a couple minutes and try to offer some words that are going to make everybody be on the same page in that. What I do believe, what it reveals, is, is we have lost the ability to hear one another. We've lost the ability to listen to other people's stories and, and empathize with perspectives even if we don't agree with it. And what happens when we stop hearing and we stop talking and we stop listening is we resort to violence, we resort to anger. And I'm not justifying any of that. And I'm not saying that Officer Wilson did anything wrong. I'm not taking a side on one or the other, but I'm saying there's a lot of brokenness that gets revealed in us. We are broken. We are a people that continue to... to reveal over and over how desperate we need we are for restoration, for the presence of Christ that brings healing into the lives of not just individuals, but of communities that have become fractured. We've become fractured. And I want to commend something to you to challenge you to go read. And that is, um, and, and you know, it's amazing the prophetic voices that come from unexpected places. You may have seen this this week, but there is a football player from the New Orleans Saints by the name of Benjamin Watson, African-American, who wrote a powerful perspective from his, of what has happened this week. And I, you know, if you don't take anything from this, listen to other voices. Listen to the perspective and the stories of others, even if it's outside your experiences. And his perspective is powerful, and his words are challenging. But at the end, he says something that I've heard others say, and I think it's so true. He says, it's not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. We're broken. We're broken. But it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the promise of God that begins to make things new and to restore all things and to give us something to look forward to when this brokenness will be well, the, the rough places will be made smooth. As the prophet says, the lion will lay down with the lamb when the kingdom of God will be revealed in full. That's the promise that we hold on to. That's what we look forward to. In fact, every time we celebrate communion at some point in the ritual, we say those words of faith that remind us of what we look forward to. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. That's our promise. That God who speaks into our lives, and it's not just for what will be, but for what is. For the God who speaks promise into us and says that I'm with you. In the places where it seems like 
there's shambles all around, I'm there. And I speak a promise of restoration and wholeness into your lives. That's what we hold on to. I, I read a, a reflection uh, recently on, that was written by a Lutheran pastor in the aftermath of a tornado that devastated Spencer, South Dakota in 1998, May 30th, 1998. It was the most destructive tornado that had ever hit that area um, in monetary value and the second most destructive in human life value. Six people lost their lives. And this Lutheran pastor was recounting walking the city after the tornado among the devastation. And the, what, what amounted in many ways to the ruins of the city. And she finally made her way to the church where she served. And she walked in and she said, there among everything that had been, you know, torn apart was the, the statue of Jesus with the arms out that was just standing right at the altar where it always had stood. And she said, I was shocked how this statue could have possibly survived all of this. And the days later, she would come to learn that two young girls who had been searching the rubble for whatever they could find of, of their lives as they had known it, they made their way into the church. And they found the statue of Jesus. And they tipped it back up and they put it back where it belonged. And they did it because they wanted the people to be able to look to Jesus in the midst of the chaos that had overtaken their lives. They wanted the people to remember that Jesus still reigned in the midst of the tragedy that they had experienced. They were holding on to the promise of faith, the promise of Advent, that God is there and that God makes things new and will restore all things. That's the promise we hold on to. We, we come into this season, all of us, in different places. We do this every day, every Sunday we come in together. But we come in, some of us, with nothing but the anticipation and the joy of Christmas and, and what is to come. But some of you, I know your hearts are heavy because you've shared with me the, the, the loss, the fear, the anxiety that, that you're bringing into this season. Wherever we are, Christ meets us there. And God's promises are ever new. I'm there. I will restore all things. It's the promise Revealed in the person of Jesus. Wherever you are, hold fast to Jesus. Journey step by step with his presence, with his hope, with his strength. And even wherever you are, allow that to begin to birth excitement. Words that promise us that what is is not what will be. And the challenges of today pale in comparison to the promise of eternity that is revealed in the birth of a child. And that child is Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for the promise of faith and for the hope that you give us in Christ. Birth in us, reveal in us, nurture in us a faith that holds fast to you and clings to your promise and to the person you have come, and that is Jesus. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Friends, let's stand as we sing. Our hymn of commitment this morning, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus.